Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and this is another one in the Anarchism 101 series introducing you to great texts and thinkers in anarchism. Previously this month, I read a couple of texts from the goddess of anarchy, Lucy Parsons, uh, her definition of anarchism, and her speech at the founding condition of the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world. You can go back in the feed and find those if you would like to listen to them first. Today, I'm being joined by Jacqueline Jones, whose book, Goddess of Anarchy, was the one that shed light on Lucy Parsons and her life for many of us. This is a fascinating story because if you know anything about Lucy Parsons, you probably know that she is one of the prominent women in the anarchist movement and one of the very few black women who achieved prominence during the late 19th, early 20th century heyday of anarchism. And yet her relationship to being a woman and having been born enslaved is incredibly complicated and difficult. And uh, if you see references to Lucy Parsons as a black woman anarchist on the internet, you are only getting a tiny bit of a confusing, complex, and difficult story. And thank goodness, Jacqueline Jones is here to make sense of this very difficult to understand woman for us. That's after the music. Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is part of the Anarchism 101 session where we are reading and discussing important anarchist texts by important anarchist thinkers. And I am joined today for the discussion of Lucy Parsons. Jacqueline Jones. Uh, I'm uh, recently retired from the University of Texas at Austin and I'm a labor historian. Okay, so uh, Jacqueline Jones introduced herself. <laughs> so that works okay. Great. So Lucy Parsons uh, is a fascinating figure. Uh, I read your book, Goddess of Anarchy. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I found uh, I found myself with more questions, <laughs> I think. Also, I got lots of answers from your book. Thank you so much for doing this work. It's an invaluable service. Let's let's begin with the with the beginning mystery of where did Lucy Parsons come from? And uh, which is something that she herself shrouded during her life. She was born to an enslaved woman in Virginia in 1851. Her mother's name, we know, is Charlotte. She had two brothers. Eventually, um, in 1863, her enslaver, uh, J.R. Tolliver, or I'm sorry, T.R. Tolliver, moved the the plantation or at least some of his enslaved workers to Waco, Texas. And we don't know anything about that trek from Virginia to Texas. We do know that there were enslavers who thought that they needed to uh, preserve the institution of slavery by moving their workers out of um, the reach of Union soldiers Union occupiers, but it was unusual, I think, for uh, an enslaver to move so far from Virginia to Texas. I mean, we have a lot of cases of 
um, slave owners in Louisiana moving to Texas during the war, for instance. But anyway, um, he moved uh, to McLennan County uh, outside of Waco. And then as soon as the war was over, Charlotte took her family Lucy and her two sons into town, Waco, I assume for safety's sake, because the countryside was very violent. And she, um, Charlotte married uh, a man named Charlie Carter in Waco, uh, probably around 1865 or so. Uh, We do find Lucy Parsons in the 1870 census, but it wasn't easy for me to find her because she was under the name Lucia Carter. But there she was in the same building with her mother uh, and two brothers who lived together. And she was living in a separate apartment, it looks like, with, um, I think, a woman from the plantation, uh, Tolliver's plantation, and then a, a man, I'm not sure where he was from. And she also, in 1870, had a baby. She had a baby named Champ, and we were not sure who the father is, uh, she and her mother both worked as domestics in Waco after the war. And at some point, she as a teenager, Lucy as a teenager, attended a freedman's school where she got just a rudimentary education. But um, she seemed to have had a common law husband there at one point. Um, but we think that by 1869 or so, she had met Albert Parsons. And he's really a fascinating character because he was the younger brother of a Confederate general, and he served as a scout in the Confederate Army. But when he returned from the war, he originally, he was born in Alabama, but he returned, uh, he he went to Texas after the war because that's where um, one of his brothers lived, uh, I think the general. In any case, he went to Texas and became very active in the Republican Party. And it, it's, um, you know, an unusual path for a former Confederate soldier. But there were precedents for that. Uh, I think he had political ambitions and he realized after the war that the Republican Party was probably the best pathway to political office. But he became very well known in Central Texas for um, organizing African-American voters. And he would give long stump speeches and travel uh, long distances. Uh, he was very resourceful and, uh, and resilient. But anyway, they met, I think, in Waco in 1869, where they were both living. And uh, they had married by 1872. And this seems very odd in Texas for a white man and a woman of African descent to marry. But the Republicans were in control of the state for just a year or two there, 1871, 1872. And the mayor of Waco was a Republican, and I believe it was he who married them in 1872. But by the next year, the Republican, the Democrats had regained control of the state, and the two of them uh, decided, uh, Albert and Lucy, uh, by now, when she moved, she called herself Lucy, but Lucy Parsons by this time, they decided to move to Chicago. And I think 
that the key here is that since he was so active in Republican politics, Albert had met a lot of German Americans, a lot of German immigrants who were a key constituency of the Republican Party in Texas at that time. And it was through contacts with them that the couple moved to Chicago because they settled immediately in an overwhelmingly German neighborhood at that point. Uh, and they they both became active in radical politics. Um, I don't know whether you have any other questions about her early life. Um, I, I think that I think that takes us to where to where we need to be. We've got the connection to Albert Parsons and the connection to politics, and then we can we can go to Chicago and we can start heading towards Haymarket, which is obviously <laughs> where where this story is going. Yeah, well, um, both of them became active in um, socialist politics when they got to Chicago. Obviously, a lot of radical ferment in that city at the time, a lot of it driven by German immigrants, uh, radicals who were in essence refugees from their own country. Uh, the Parsons seemed to fit in. I must say that there were not a lot of English speaking uh, radicals in Chicago at that time. A lot of them were from Western Europe. And as I said, the Germans predominated, but in any case, Albert uh, and Lucy seem to have been radicalized by the uh, Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Later, Lucy would say that um, she realized that the government was the root of all misery, poverty, violence as a result of the clashes in Chicago. Uh, Albert took a leading role at that point as an orator seeking to organize workers, uh, exhorting them to fight back against the police and so forth. So, and in the late 1870s, we see Albert running for office too on the socialist ticket in Chicago and at the county level. And he was never elected. And there are reasons for this, obviously. I mean, the Republicans and Democrats were the predominant parties. It was very difficult for the socialists to make inroads at that point. But he he began to think that um, the political system was corrupt to its core and that politics was not the answer. Voting <clears throat> was not worth the time and effort. And by the early 1880s, he and Lucy had turned to what they called anarchism, which discouraged uh, voting of all kinds. She was never a great believer in the ballot in any venue, including the founding convention of the Wobblies in 1905. But in any case, uh, he, he started, uh, Albert started a paper called the Alarm, and she contributed a piece to the very first issue of October 1884 called Two Tramps. And this was a very interesting essay, call to arms, if you will. She presents a, an out-of-work man who is walking along the windy, cold shores of Lake Michigan, worried about his family back home. His wife and children are starving. He's distraught. And she says to him, um, don't despair. And then the last, um, the last sentence of the piece is learn the use of explosives. So that became kind of her anarchist 
calling card. Uh, she was a prolific writer. She would go on later in her life. She edited two newspapers of her own, one called Freedom, the other called Liberator. But she contributed to socialist uh, publications as well as anarchist publications, Knights of Labor publications. She wrote short stories. She wrote a kind of science fiction. Um, she wrote social commentary, political commentary. Uh, she was a, a really gifted writer. And again, remember, she had had very little in the way of formal education, but she was reading very widely in both the popular press and in kind of industrial strength political theory at this point, political philosophy. So um, anyway, the, again, the anarchists were an even smaller group than the socialists in Chicago, and again, dominated by German-Americans primarily. Uh, and Albert had quite a name for himself. He was known as a gifted orator and someone who could really hold an audience's attention for a couple hours at a time. He was so anyway, uh, they became kind of the power couple of the anarchist movement in Chicago. Um, and they both got involved in what was called the eight hour day movement. Uh, of course, this is a time when workers were working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. There was no limit on hours. There was no such thing as a minimum wage. There weren't safety and health regulations. Uh, it was really brutal. It was a brutal existence. And then some crafts were being replaced by machines. Um, after the great Chicago fire of 1871, a lot of people poured in from the countryside to help with the rebuilding. And then after the city was rebuilt, they remained, which meant there was a an oversupply of labor. So a lot of unemployment, both chronic and um, short term. In any case, uh, the eight hour day movement uh, really galvanized a lot of Chicago's workers. And on May 1st, 1886, there was a, a mass demonstration in the city consisted of a parade, but also strikes on the part of men and women in various crafts and factories in the city at that point. Uh, workers at the McCormick farm machinery plant went out on strike and uh, on May 2nd, there was a um, clash between those workers and the police and two workers were killed by police. Um, the anarchists decided that they needed to organize off this, off this outrage uh, and they called for a mass meeting in Haymarket Square in Chicago for May 4th, 1886. And again, this was sponsored by the anarchists. Uh, August Spies, who was very prominent at the time, spoke that night. Uh, Albert Parsons spoke at that evening uh, rally, and so did Samuel Fielden, who was British-born anarchist. Um, now, the Parsons' role in Haymarket is uh, a little problematic because Later during the trial, and I'll get to that, but um, Albert Parsons was not fully forthcoming about his his movements that night. And in fact, 
he later claimed that he he didn't know that uh, a bomb would be thrown. He didn't know that there would be violence be, and because he had brought his children to the rally. And, and in fact, he had not brought his children to the rally. They attended a meeting with him earlier and then he sent them home. Uh, Lucy was there, um, but they were not present. In any case, so the police were not far away. This rally was taking place. Um, and Samuel Fielden engaged in some uh, rhetoric that the police found troubling. Anyway, the police enter Haymarket Square, I think about 1030 in the evening. And it's about that time that someone from an alley nearby throws a bomb that kills one police officer instantly, six more in time. And the, there was a general melee, um, a great deal of confusion after that. Four workers at least were killed. We're really not sure the exact casualty or fatality figure. It's estimated 60 workers were injured. But um, in any case, uh, this is called the Haymarket Massacre. Uh, there, I think there were a lot of police shooting wildly. It was dark. And I think a lot of the fatalities and the the, the men who were wounded were, were, you know, that was because of police action and not because of the anarchists, although the bomb did, uh, the bomb did kill some people. So anyway, there was a trial. Uh, I should note here that Albert Parsons left Chicago uh, and went to Waukesha, Wisconsin for six weeks. And, you know, we can only speculate why that was, but he did come back uh, for the trial that which began June 21st. Uh, and to make a long story short, um, there were originally eight defendants. A couple had their sentences, but, and they were all found guilty. It was a farce of a trial. It was <laughs> the the jury had not one working class person on it. The judge was hostile from the outset. It was it was a really um, an abomination <laughs> of a trial. But in any case, um, eventually five men were condemned to death. One of them, Lewis Ling, committed suicide in his cell the night before the execution. And then four men were, were executed, including Albert Parsons. And I should say that no one has ever discovered who threw that bomb. There have been a lot of uh, a lot of people have speculated and we have some suspects, but um, Albert Parsons and Lucy Parsons were in a tavern um, a few blocks from Haymarket when the bomb was thrown. And whether he was uh, present at a planning meeting for the rally the night before, he was not. Actually, he was out of town at that point. He didn't arrive back home till the morning of the 4th. So uh, what this was, was Chicago authorities going after what we might call the usual suspects, those who had been affiliated with a German radical newspaper, an anarchist newspaper called Arbeiter Zeitung, which means workers paper. Albert Parsons, of course, prominent because of his work with the alarm. Um, actually, Lucy Parsons, two tramps, was uh, entered into evidence in the trial as a sign that these were very uh, violent violence-prone people. Um, but in any case, the uh, authorities wanted to make an example of these radicals. And again, not knowing who threw the bomb, they just, um, you know, decided they were going to round up some of the more outspoken anarchists and also those who were most prominent in um, 
and circulating these these two newspapers in in Chicago. So um, I should just say that um, Lucy Parsons by this time had a name for herself through her writings, but when her husband was convicted in August of 1886 and they needed to fund appeals, she decided to take to the road and become um, a fundraiser basically for the defendants who had been convicted, these convicted men and raise money so that they could um, hire lawyers and uh, see their appeals through. So that's really the first time that she becomes a national figure when she launches this lecture tour, basically. And uh, she goes out in the fall of 1886 and then she goes out again in the spring of 1887. And right before she goes out in the fall of 86, she takes on a new persona. Um, She becomes a, a, well, she presents herself as a woman of indigenous and Mexican descent. Uh, She calls herself Lucy Gonzalez, Lucy L. Dean Gonzalez Parsons. (laughs) And she and Albert concoct the story that she was born in Texas and, um, Again, I should say, I should back up here a bit. She had very light skin. She was of indeterminate origins. She's probably the daughter of her enslaver and and, um, Charlotte, obviously, her mother. But she she was a source of great fascination. (laughs) And to read the press accounts of her uh, tour that year is is really fascinating because the, the reporters can't really make sense of her. First of all, she's very fiery in her rhetoric. Uh, She denounces the judge in the trial, Judge Gary. She uh, denounces the prosecutor. She says she wants to run the guillotine that will cut off the capitalist heads. She hopes to see the rivers of Chicago running red with the blood of capitalists. I mean, and this is coming from someone who is very... um, very respectable looking. She was a, an excellent seamstress. She opened a, a sewing shop in Chicago. She made all her own clothes, very fashionable. Um, and she had on beautiful jewelry. Uh, the picture on the front of my book shows her with a hat with an ostrich plume, black ostrich plume. She's wearing a silk striped dress with a lace collar, gold jewelry. So you know, a lot of people can't make sense of this very um, fiery, violent rhetoric coming from one someone who looks like a very proper Victorian wife and mother. Uh, and in that sense, she's kind of a sensation throughout the country. Um, I, I should stop here now and ask whether I'm on the right track or... <laughs> um, you, you are absolutely on the right track, Jackie. I cannot believe how much you've covered. I, I'm just going to jump in and make a few historical connections for the listeners as we go along. So if you've been listening to this whole series and you've heard about Proudhon and Bakunin, you're aware of these revolutions in Europe in 1848. And one of them is in Germany, or lots of them are in what will become Germany. Those are all failures. And that's when, when you get these German refugees. Some of them are just fleeing a bad economy and a repressive system, but a lot of them are actually, you know, they were members of the Revolutionary Party. They took up arms against the government in 1848, or their parents did, or their older brother did. 
And so that's why you get revolutionary Germans in Chicago. Like these were, this was actually political exile, which is something, and that shaped to a great deal the landscape of Missouri during the time of the Civil War. Missouri is the big slave state in the bleeding Kansas saga. And then, wait a second, somehow it's a border state with lots of anti-slavery people in it during the Civil War. What happened? What happened is the radical Germans came. They came all over the Midwest. And one of the places they came to was Chicago. The other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, this 1877 railroad strike. If you don't remember this being covered in your American history class. I, as I often mention on this podcast, taught American history to high schoolers, so I have covered it many times. It is a strike that is sort of spontaneous and springs up all over the country, starts in Baltimore, and it terrifies, we'll get to this later with the Wobblies, it terrifies the respectable people who explicitly worry that it's going to be a recap of the Paris Commune. So it's the Paris Commune is 1871. This is 1877. This is another connection between Europe and the United States that we don't normally teach. At least I didn't normally teach when I taught American history. But another group that it terrifies is uh, the respectable labor. The, the people who think that the role of organized labor is to work with the capitalists so that everyone wins. And we'll see, Lucy Parsons does not take that view of, of labor. If, she, if you want to guillotine the capitalists, you are not going to be the person they want to sit across uh, a desk from and argue about what the wages are. Um, oh, let me just jump in yeah, because she... Yes. Um... She feuded with, well, um, not feuded, but uh, Mother Jones, Mother Mary Jones, uh, Mary Mother Jones and Eugene Debs were quite uh, distressed that the anarchists seemed to kind of paint the whole laboring class with this brush of violent radicalism. And as you say, it was terrifying Um to workers in, you know, especially native born Protestant workers who identified as either Democratic or Republican and didn't want to give up those partisan loyalties. It was terrifying to newspaper editors, to police officials, to politicians. Um, but I, I should I should step back for just a moment and say that she was a particular kind of anarchist and she was not necessarily consistent through her life. So as we'll see, she feuded with Emma Goldman because Emma Goldman believed that um, artistic freedom was one of the paths to revolution, uh, to the good society. And, and uh, Parsons presented herself again as a very prim Victorian mother would have nothing to do with that. She was not um, of the Benjamin Tucker um, uh, libertarian sort. She uh, believed firmly in trade unions as kind of the embryo of the good society. She certainly dabbled in Johann Moos' violent, um, his theories of the attentat, the idea that some, some element of violence, you know, whether it was an assassination or a, an instance of arson, would kind of bring the laboring classes to their senses and would ignite a revolution. She employed that rhetoric, and the anarchists in Chicago talked a lot about using dynamite 
which again, did not endear them <laughs> to a lot of people. But what they did basically was try and say, look, we might be small in numbers, but we're powerful if we can uh, use dynamite, use explosives of any kind, you know, we'll kind of level the playing field, right, against the the rifles of the National Guard and the U.S. Army troops that are called into quell strikes and and so forth. But what they did with that very radar, radical rhetoric was, um, again, kind of frighten uh, the powers that be, and it came back to haunt them, obviously, after Haymarket when they were rounded up. But again, I should kind of distinguish her from other kinds of anarchists and say Emma Goldman was not a big fan of labor unions. So that is one element of disagreement between the two of them. Again, um, with Parsons firmly believing, again, that trade unions were kind of the building blocks of the good society. And she, one of the issues I bring up in the book is that she's kind of not attentive to what's happening in Chicago at the time, where there are a lot of turf wars, where these different craft unions begin to, um, you know, go after each other. And there are internal um, disagreements within these unions that lead to all kinds of violence and turf wars. I mean, it's not a particularly uh, ennobling history of labor organizing in Chicago. Uh, and she, for the most part, kind of ignored that. She'd much rather talk about what was going on in Russia than on the streets of Chicago. Okay. Um, I think that takes us, well, you can tell me if we, if we can make this leap yet, but this is, so first of all, one thing I want to say about the, the trial, and you can tell me if this is right or not, but essentially what happens is the authorities put anarchism on trial, specifically defining mm -hmm. it as this violent dynamite based mm -hmm. version of anarchism. And the, the people on trial, especially Parsons, also put anarchism on trial. The, 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 the thing is not who threw the bomb, were you there? It's is dynamite, you know, a valid source, uh, you know, who, who is doing the most violence in this system? Is dynamite, is dynamite a good response to the cops killing people illegally? Is all of this justified? Which you would expect you're going to, in, in a court of law with armed guards there, you're going to lose the case that violent insurrection on behalf of the exploited and murdered laborer is, is justified. And in that sense, um, neither side uh, engages with what we would think of as the standard legal principles of American justice, which is why it's so easy uh, for, to think of these people as martyrs and for the governor later to pardon the ones who survived because it very obviously was not, was not a trial in keeping with what the American justice system wants to think of its, its trials as. Is that, is that a fair? Yes, okay. that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and I think, I think that's why Albert returned from Waukesha was to, you know, um, I think he was surprised that he was arrested as soon as he returned. But, you know, I think he and his comrades thought this was a great uh, sounding board, right? They would have the opportunity to testify and to go over their theories of anarchism and may score some points uh, in the process, whether they expected to be condemned to death. I, I kind of doubt actually, but um, that was certainly the outcome. Okay, from there, um, and you can do whatever connective tissue we need to, I, I wanna move to 
the, the founding of the industrial workers of the world, better known as the Wobblies, although I still haven't ever tracked down exactly why they are called the Wobblies, having worked on them for a long time. Um, and this is a union that uh, is meant to, precisely as you say, be the embryo for the entire reorganization of society. It will bring everyone together except for the capitalists, and it will, in theory, eliminate, skip over, dissolve, weld together all of these differences that you that you were talking about. And so whereas the AFL, I mean, the AFL-CIO might need wheeler dealers at the top who can navigate all these competing interests, the IWW is meant to tear down all these barriers and create one enormous all-conquering union that will then become all, the only form of organization in society. What a what a what a dream! And it did animate a lot of a lot of people yeah. for a very brief period of time. So right. if you could, uh, if you well, could and us, the end yeah. of it, I think was, and it was, it didn't end in 1919, but there was, the repression was so brutal. I mean, by 1919, 1920, so many of the IWW leaders were in jail. I mean, it's one of the. <laughs> one of the many disgraceful episodes in American history. But yes, so, uh, and Lucy Parsons was invited to that organizing convention in Chicago in July of 1905. But uh, reading deeply into the record of that meeting, it's clear she was invited as, I think someone called her stage decoration. You know, she's kind of an iconic figure. She was the wife of the martyr Albert Parsons. She was a well-known speaker. She had been traveling around the country since his death, um, speaking on behalf of anarchism, selling a biography of him. She also went to England. So anyway, she was well-known, certainly in radical, uh, radical circles. And by this time she was 56. Uh, and anyway, she was invited to sit there on the platform, but, um, she was not invited to speak until she she asked to speak. And if you read her speech, she's, um, yeah, she's kind of disgusted that she, and she begins with this faux ma modesty, you know, I'm in the presence of intellectual giants and I don't know what I can offer. Well, that is all, knowing her, that was ridiculous. She felt far superior to these guys in terms of having been well-read, having seen it all, <laughs> having um, dealt with the police. I mean, she was fearless when she got up to speak and the police would often rush the stage to drag her off. And I mean, she'd really walk the walk and did the talk in a way that a lot of these men had not. But anyway, she she, that speech, um, and she speaks two days at the convention, I think, but she first of all, she speaks on behalf of women and, and children. She speaks on behalf of prostitutes and others whom these men are really not so focused on, right? I mean, when we think of the wobblies, actually, I mean, they organized a lot of different kinds of workers, but mainly we think of them as kind of the roustabouts and the rough and tumble guys. So she wanted to, you know, remind them that, that women were workers, too, um, she said she hoped that they would not go off on the socialist path and run candidates for office. 
Um, and she pointed to what was happening to, in Russia in 1905, the ferment there, to suggest that, you know, the world was on the verge of some kind of radical revolution. But as I mentioned in the book, you know, Chicago itself in 1905, that summer was in turmoil because of various crafts trying to organize. And, they, you know, men of the same craft were fighting against each other. And, you know, and so it's notable in her speeches, she doesn't mention what's happening outside the convention hall, which is not really, um, again, what she had anticipated, what she wanted to see. She's much more comfortable about talking in generalities and about what's happening around the world than in talking about Chicago labor organizing in particular. So she was there at the convention, and then she did go off to the Northwest later. And again, uh, she gave speeches, and she made her living primarily by selling uh, photographs of her husband, drawings of him, uh, his, his biography that she had put together. So that was, that was her livelihood at this point, the lecture circuit. Uh, she was not organizing workers, but there are great cases, again, of her putting a soapbox in the middle of a street and getting up to denounce the capitalists. And uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, the police rush in and then she goes to another street corner and, you know, that cat and mouse game she loved, uh, I must say. I, I didn't mention one signature element here of her life that I should at least mention uh, and that is in 1899, she was an outspoken opponent to American imperialism, especially in the Philippines. And uh, she had two children. One, uh, Lulu, died uh, at the age of eight. Uh, but her son, Albert Jr., uh, in 1899, by that time he was a high school graduate. And he came home one day and told his mother he was joining the army. <laughs> And she did not take kindly to that. And eventually, I mean, within a few weeks, actually, she had dragged him before a judge who condemned him to sent him to a, um, an insane asylum north of Chicago, where he died 20 years later. I mean, it's a very sad story. I don't think she ever visited him. She was enraged that he would go against her wishes. I think she felt what he was going to do would be humiliating to her. So it it provides a, you know, a sense of her. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I've never been able to make sense of that uh, particular act. But I know, again, that there was a real, um, you know, I think there was a deep well of resentment in her. She had lived a hard life. You know, we don't know much about that trek from Virginia to Texas in the Civil War. Um, and, Anyway, that it was, and you know, there was that tension between her public life and her private life, where in her private life, she had some um, well-publicized affairs, uh, especially one with a younger man. And uh, those who worshipped at the altar of Albert Parsons as a martyr were very upset that she would, you know, despoil his name by carrying on like that. But anyway, she was her own person, so. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, I mean, the figure that emerges to me in your book is a figure who it is difficult to make 
sense of uh, one of the greatest advocates for labor organizing in, in the history of the world, honestly, who doesn't seem to have done a lot of organizing, one who is remembered, who was who placed these days, at least in the anarchist tradition, alongside people like Ida B. Wells and Frederick Douglass for her role as a public black woman, but she was she was not a public black woman. She was a black woman in public, but denying that yeah. role for herself. She's a very, she's a very difficult figure, which I did not, uh, I did not apprehend. Um, a, a, an advocate for dynamite, who uh, ne nevertheless seems to have completely disavowed the Haymarket bomb, or at least disassociated herself mm -hmm. from it. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is difficult stuff. Um, I do want to speak briefly a little bit more about um, this article that I included for the listeners and mm -hmm. anarchism, you know, its principles. I think the key mm -hmm. thing, and, and this is maybe pretty uh, standard anarchist theory of this time, although, as you say, she is a striking writer. Uh, she's <laughs> not striking in the sense that she's advocating for strikes, although that too, but she, she is a great writer. She's a great stylist. Um, I, I think she really, and this I think ties into the dynamite, hits the point, and we get these arguments in Kropotkin and other places, that the source of violence is the government. And uh, Emma Goldman makes this case as well. Like, you accuse me of violence. Sure, but doesn't everyone honor self-defense? And if the other side has tanks, dynamite is the is the correct thing to hold up. And so in that, in, in that sense, it seems to me that her advocacy of violence is in this sort of classic anarchist tradition, you started it. We became violent because you were violent first. Does that accord with your understanding? It does. Uh, yes, it does. Although she uh, she really mutes that point of view after 1900 or so, you know, with assassinations, political assassinations. Um, there is an Italian group that uh, engages in various kinds of um, subversion and uh, blowing things up. And she, you know, I, she begins to really moderate her tone after 1900 or so because anarchism now is kind of in the hands of these Italian immigrants who uh, are really quite open about it. And I will say one thing about her, she did not want to spend any time in jail. She spent time in jail in, I think, Cleveland on one of her trips, and she found it disgusting. <laughs> you know, the food was terrible. She couldn't sleep. It was, it was dirty. Um, so she, when she's arrested, she makes sure that she gets bailed out uh, very quickly. She led a hunger demonstration in Chicago, I think, in 1916, and made sure that Hull House, Jane Addams and others, bailed her, her out just because you know, she just did not want to spend one night in jail. So anyway, we see her become more of a cultural icon. I think after 1900, she, you know, her rhetoric loses that bite. Obviously, you know, the speech at the Wobbly Convention, this um, speech from 1905, which was published in pamphlet form, you know, she goes after the government as the root of all evil again, but she's not really talking about dynamite in these. And she's not talking about assassination or blowing things up either. Um, she And she stays out of jail. She does stay out of prison. I mean, by 1918, 1919, a lot of these 
wobbly organizers, Gene, Gene Debs and others um, are, are incarcerated, right? They're sent off to Leavenworth and it's a really brutal existence for opposing World War One or, you know, espousing radical ideas, um, opposing the draft, those kinds of things. Uh, so, but that by the 1920s or so, she's kind of receded. She's still very much an interesting cultural figure in Chicago. And in fact, Northwestern students would go on these kind of radicalism tours and they would talk to her as someone who, you know, remember the good old days of, you know, the anarchist heyday in Chicago in the 1880s. But um, she still continues to write. She's very disappointed in the New Deal. Uh, she's disappointed that a lot of workers identify as Democrats. She remains anti-political party to the end. So... So first I need to note, you have now hit the everyday anarchism required quota of one mention of Jane Addams or John Dewey on every oh. episode. Um, <laughs> usually I'm the one who has to bring them up. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing that for me because I'm sure the listeners are tired of me mentioning Jane Addams and John Dewey, but uh, that's just who I am, so I'm gonna keep doing it. Um, next, I think we can uh, I think we can move on based on what you talked about to the the thing that we've alluded to already. Um, when she's representing women and children, I was struck reading her talk about, you know, how cheap things are at the department store, how that resonates with the conversation we are currently having about fast fashion, or at least mm -hmm. you know, whether we are having it, but the things that I'm seeing on the internet about fast fashion, there's often comments about the environment, of course, but the, the workers um, who are making the garments that so many of us are wearing are tremendously exploited and they do seem to be left out of the of the labor narrative. And so for that, at least I'm just so grateful for Lucy Parsons to have put them front and center and gone and spoken at this conglomeration of, of men, as you say, and put them front and center. So if you could just talk a bit more about the, the place of women in, yeah. in this movement. Well, she begins to talk more um more pointedly about women's plight, I would say in the 1890s, when there is this anarchist turn toward uh, a kind of sexual liberation. So she's competing you know, with her writings with some Emma Goldman and her acolytes who claim that sexual liberation is key here to the revolution. Uh, Lucy Parsons presents herself as very much an advocate for women. She talks about the downtrodden mother of so many children. She uh, advocates for some kind of birth control, it seems. Um, and she uh, writes her stories about the exploitation of children as well. Now, but keep in mind, first of all, she was um, didn't, never advocated for women's suffrage. As I told you, she did not think anybody should vote. She thought that was kind of a false solution, right? That people thought they could change the world by voting in good people. She said, no, that will never happen. All politicians are inherently corrupt and voting is a waste of everybody's time. So that's one thing. I mean, this is a great era of uh, women organizing for the vote, right? And she says, no, I will have nothing to do with that. Um, but also, you know, as far as uh, sexual liberation, she says the family is integral here 
to the Good Society. And in fact, in um, her Principles of Anarchy, she talks about the family as a model of cooperation. Certainly, here are, you know, people of different ages, people of different sexes, but somehow everybody gets things done, everybody respects everybody else, and this is, you know, kind of a fundamental unit of human organization. So she wants to distance herself from people who say, well, you know, it's okay to have children and not know who the father is. She's very, you know, upset at that idea. But again, it's hard to figure out how much of this is her public performance and how much is her deeply felt philosophy. <laughs> so, Okay. Um, I think we are, we are moving towards the end. We are running out of time. So uh, I think the key thing now to talk about is, is her is her legacy? I'm gonna put you on the spot here. You wrote the book. How can we, should we think about Lucy Parsons today? Well, she was a remarkable woman in so many ways. When I think about her writings, her rhetoric, you know, one of the horrible things is, is that we have no recordings of her. So at the time, her claim to fame was her speechifying. And she could really bring an audience to its feet. And I'm talking about, you know, men, women <laughs> of all kinds. She was really a great orator, but we don't have, we don't have that. Um, and so I think that's why her, her legacy has kind of faded, because the thing that she was most known for during her lifetime, these speeches um, actually are not accessible to us. But she really did... Uh, certainly foreshadow where we are today. I mean, she denounced the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the exploitation of workers of all ages, all kinds, the need for workers to organize. You know, her, her writings are very powerful today. And I think, you know, more people should read them. At the same time, you know, she's a problematic personality based on her own background and her unwillingness to you know, to come forward and say, I was born to an enslaved woman. I think she felt that her listeners would dismiss her or not take her seriously if they thought they were listening to a black woman. But yeah, something else I wanted to mention, uh, I think th there's a quote in your book where she says, like, race has no place in, in, in the analysis, like mm -hmm. the, the, the black worker or the black sharecropper or even the enslaved person prior to 1865 deserves sympathy as a person, as a worker, and, and race is a way that they are exploited. But in a, in a fairly Marxist uh, fashion, yeah. exploitation is the only thing right. that deserves attention, and the, the racial element does not deserve attention. And, and, and at this moment, when, uh, when we're trying to think, or many people are trying to think more intersectionality uh, intersectionally mm -hmm. this figure who fits perfectly into this narrative of intersectionality seems to have not uh thought it with an intersectional idea and did not want to engage in that kind of thinking right well you know in the book i express my um my surprise that she cared not 
at all about the work, the black working people of Chicago. They never come into her writing. She never talks about them. And, and someone uh, said, well, you know, why just because she's born to an enslaved woman, why must she care about black workers? And I said, it's not because she's born to an enslaved woman. It's because she presents herself as a radical. If she's truly a radical, she will care about what's happening to black workers at the time, the violence against them, ghettoization, uh, labor exploitation, but no. And she just, it's really uh, quite remarkable the way she avoids the topic altogether. And so for that reason, I do question, you know, in a sense her radical nature. Yeah, I mean, this is so available now to the kind of psychoanalytic work that I do my best to avoid. I think we just have to, I think we just have to let the mystery be. Yeah. I mean, this is the enigma of Lucy Parsons, yeah. but but boy, is it so easy to speculate. Is it so easy to think, oh, there there is a reason why the black worker was not was not part of her vision. And it has much less to do with whether she was a radical and much more to do with you know, in this Freudian sense, these thoughts about her, her early life, but uh, about that which one cannot speak, one must remain silent, or at least I will remain silent at, at this point. Um, this has been fantastic, Jackie. I, I feel like we are shedding a light for the listeners on a, on a figure that they probably know only at like a bumper sticker level, if they know anything about anarchism at all. And if they if they do not, you know, she's not in the textbooks next to uh, next to Frederick Douglass or, e or even Emma Goldman. Um, right. Is there anything else before we go that you think uh, we, we should know? I mean, I can't, I can't believe what we've covered in, in less than an hour. No, but I, I just want to reiterate what you said. That's, you know, parts of her will always remain a mystery. She wrote very little about her own life, you know, considering her voluminous writings, it's, kind of striking that she she wrote so little about herself. And she said at one point, people don't care about me. You know, they care about my ideas, but she was wrong about that. People were very curious about her and I certainly was. So. <laughs> yes, well that, um, you know, Jane Adams writes that uh, the, the woman who doesn't have a past or doesn't have a home, who can't fall back on the traditional institutions of success on their degree, on their parents, that sort of thing. That is the woman who is truly concerned with self-preservation, self-presentation. Mm -hmm. She has to preserve herself with her presentation because she cannot fall back on any of these other things. So her preservation is entirely based around what she wears, how she speaks, what people think of her. Right. And on that note, uh, just one final thing, and that is um, the title sounds odd, Goddess of Anarchy, because the anarchists believe um, no government, no gods. But this is what some of her critics call her. And I think she would have liked the title because she was very vain. I mean, she's very beautiful. She's very well dressed. And I think she would have been happy with the title, even though it sounds odd for a book about an, an anarchist. <laughs> Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful, Jackie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for that 
frankly, eye-opening. I know I say that a lot on these Anarchism 101 series, but my eyes are opened over and over again to the complexity, the difficulty, the richness of these historical figures. Lucy Parsons, an amazing provocateur and a, uh, a committed fighter for justice and a difficult person to understand and accept. Thank you, Jacqueline, for helping us understand her a little bit more. Remember, you can find out more about the show and the series at everydayanarchism.com. That's also where you can give a financial donation if you would like to help the show continue. I really do need your help. If you cannot give financially, just try and keep the show going by telling a friend or leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>